Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Empires Volume 3 is part three of a study through the book of Romans. In this message, Pastor Andy McGowan answers the question, does God keep his promises? Enjoy the message. Romans is an important theological book. In fact, it has been said by theologians, it's perhaps the most important theological work ever written. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Augustine, he said that after reading Romans, all his doubts were dispelled. Uh, the Reformation was sparked through Martin Luther's reading of the letter of Roman, to the Romans. And so he broke from the Catholic Church after he read Romans and noticed that justification wasn't by works or by sacraments, but justification was by faith alone. And when you trace back many of the different revivals that have sparked and broke out across the world in America, it happened after people were reading in the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul as a letter to the Roman church to address specific needs. Paul often did this. He would write letters to churches. The Holy Spirit would inspire him. It becomes scripture. And in that we see specific questions, specific problems, specific needs that not only were relevant for the church in that time, but are relevant for us today. And so today, specifically, uh, we're going to kick off a whole section, chapter 9 through 11, that has to deal with the nation of Israel. And if you were with us in our previous session, the book of Revelation, we know that Israel plays a very important role in the end times. And so people are beginning to question Paul, like, hey, uh, at, the, at the writing of when the letter of Romans was written, people are like, what happened to the nation of Israel? Uh, Israel fell some uh, 500 years prior to the writing of this book. And like, when's Israel coming back? Does, is God keeping his promise if Israel's not around. And Paul addresses this, and we'll get into that this morning because it has ramifications for us as well. But also, did you know, even after Romans was written, it was some, uh, well, 1900 years later, really, until Israel was back on the map, was put back on the map in 1948, and Israel is with us today. And I believe that is a clue for us, uh, maybe what God is doing even today. So today we're going, to keep, we're going to kick off volume three with the question, does God keep his promises? Or another way, can we trust God with what he has said he has promised in our life? And this is a question if we're being real with ourselves, we've asked God this. God, do I trust you? God, do I trust you with what your word says? Do I trust you with what you have said? Can I believe you indeed you really will keep your promises? Now, indeed, the Sunday school answer is yes, right? Does God keep his promises? And we would all say... Yes, right? That's the easy way of answering it, but I want to get to the real way of answering it. Does God keep his promises? And what I want you to do is I want you to search your heart where you're doubting his promise. I want you to search your heart where you're questioning God. Why are you doing it this way? I want you to search your heart and I want you to ask, God, I wish it was different. And these are the areas where perhaps maybe, just maybe, you don't understand the promises of God or maybe indeed you are doubting the promises of God. To believe a promise whether it be God or, or anybody for that matter, you have to trust. Trust is the core of all human relationships. It's the core of our relationship, uh, whether it's marriage, whether it's our kids, whether it's friendships, whether it's uh, our workplace, whether it's medicine, whether it's politics. Trust is the core of how we move about in life. Uh, trust is the core of even the things that we use, whether it be a vehicle. If you didn't think a vehicle was gonna get you to A, it, to 
point A to point B, you probably wouldn't get in it. If you didn't trust the person driving, maybe you do this anyway, but if you didn't trust the person driving, maybe you'd think twice about getting in that car, right? If you didn't trust the building that you're in, if like this building might collapse, you might not come in. Did you know that today you're trusting a bunch of things? You're trusting this roof will not fall in. You're trusting the chair that you're sitting in will, will not collapse. You're trusting at home if you're watching uh, in, in the Lazy Boy, right? You're, that it's not going to recline back and, and trap you, right? We trust a lot of things all the time. It's the core of who we are. But trust is being challenged today. Uh, let me just take you back. Uh, about a week ago, we came back from South Africa, a team of 14, and we flew back into O'Hare. And when you go through customs, you're tired. But the next thing you do once you get through customs is you go to the baggage claim, the conveyor belt. You just kind of wait there. You hear the eh, eh, and then all of a sudden right? And then you just watch the baggage come down, like, oh, that's mine, right? And you, and, you, and you go over and you grab your bag. Well, that's what a bunch of people did. That's what most of the people did in our team, but me and about a couple others, uh, it never happened. We just kept on watching the bags go by. We kept on watching the bags go by until everybody grabbed their bag. I'm like, where's my bag? So about 20 minutes later, I go up to the person that looked like they're in charge. I said, hey, uh, this conveyor belt's still moving, but there's no luggage on it any longer. What's going on? Oh, it's coming. It's coming. 30 minutes came by. 40 minutes came by. Finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back to the person that looks like they're in charge. Like, hey, it's been almost an hour. There's no bags dropping. What's going on? Oh, the bag's coming. The bag's coming. I don't think it's coming. Could you call the person? Yeah, I'll call the person. They get on the walkie-talkie. Yeah, there's no more bags. I'm like, I told you, right? They said, what do I do? Go to baggage claim. So I went to baggage claim. I thought it was a baggage claim, but the baggage claim from the airline. I go up to the airline. I'm like, hey, our bags are gone. The lady, without even saying a word, just hands me a card. Go to this website. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I go to the website. Guess what? The website was broke. And this morning, I'm going to tell you right now, half my clothes are somewhere in Europe, all right? Over a week later, and I called them. I was like, what happens? Well, after 21 days, we can tell you confidently that your bag's just lost. I thought it was lost. Well, then it's really lost. <laughs> you, see, you see, the thing is, is that society, things are just kind of broke right now, don't you think? Like, I've, I've lost a bag before, and they're on it, but now they're like, we're not even going to deal with it. We don't got time for that. But it's not just bags. We have lack of workers. You don't know if your takeout order is ever going to be right. You don't know if, if, if certain things are going to be in the store because of supply chain issues. It just doesn't seem like things in society are working. The conveyor belt's running, but nothing's on it. People are feeling burnt out. And as a result, people are trusting things less and less, whether it be science, whether it be medicine, whether it be politicians, and it's seeping down to the very foundations of what people typically hold that they feel like they can trust. In fact, marriages, after the COVID era, marriages are ending in divorce. It's up by 100% from what it was prior to COVID. Friendships are increasingly under pressure. Uh, one UK study said that one-fifth of society is experiencing right now friendship breakdown in a way that they've never seen before. Because we're living in a society where it's polarized. We're living in a society where it feels like we have all lost our stinking minds. Why? Because the last couple years that we've walked through, it has challenged our minds to where we're seeing uh, literally uh, just mental health issues like we've never seen before. Gasoline is being poured on what would otherwise be a shoulder shrug. Gasoline is being poured on where it's a five alarm fire. And politics, let's go back to that for a second. That hasn't helped much, has it? Trust in the government and politicians is at an all-time low where we just assume 
We're just electing another politician who's corrupt. As a result, people have turned, not to the Lord, because we'll get to that in a second, but to crazy conspiracy theories. They want to make sense of the chaos in life. And as a result, people have rejected science, medicine. People are rejecting politics as usual. And by the way, that's not all bad. We, we should be critical thinkers. But the problem is, is when we begin to reject everything, we become experts in what we think is everything, okay? We become armchair experts at everything. And listen, if you're an expert at everything, it means that you're an expert at nothing. Me included. But yet we live in an era that's what we want to do. Because trust is just gone in all of society. And this has even hit how we view God. Church attendance across the United States and across the world really is, is down. I was even dismayed, even, even in, the, in the bush of Africa, uh, the, the church had lost 75% of their attendance. There is a shifting in the church across the world right now. Those that want comfortable Christianity have been put on notice, I believe, by the Lord, by what's going on. I want you to know if you're in church today, you're doing a great thing. Press on. Press on because it's down across the world. But that doesn't mean that God is, is not working or not moving. More people are coming to Christ today than all of history. God is at work. But today we also see the trust in what the Lord has said at an all-time low in America. This just came out by the Pew Research. Only 20% of Americans believe that the word of God is actually the word of God. If actually more people believe now in American culture, 29%, 20% believe that the Bible is the word of God, 29% now believe that the Bible is a bunch of fables. For the first time in history of, of all of Pew Research, 29% more people believe the Bible in just everyday culture is fables. Not because they've studied it and found out that it's fables. No, just because that's what they feel. That's what they trust. And you think, okay, well, what do evangelicals think? What do Bible-believing Christians, what's the percentage on that? That has to be close to 100%. It's not. 40%. According to the Pew Research, those who attend church every week, those who attend a church that is Bible-believing, only 40% believe it is indeed the God's word. Which means, if I look in this room right now, and I'm not judging anybody, I'm just saying by statistics, there are people in here struggling this morning that the Bible indeed is God's word and we should obey it. Because trust has seeped down to a level that's been so low, distrust is overtaking our mind. I want you to know this, the Bible is indeed timeless. It's authoritative. It's relevant for today. It is the word of God. In fact, Paul's instruction to his apprentice Timothy said this, 2 Timothy 3.16, says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, verse 17, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete, everybody say complete. Complete and equipped. Without God's word, you will not be complete in your understanding of God's will. Without God's word, you will not be equipped to live out and follow through God's will. Now, some people say, well, I, I, well, I got the Holy Spirit. Yes, you need the Holy Spirit. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can't begin to even think in your own strength you can obey God's word. But let it be known. You just can't spirit your way through life without the word informing you who the spirit is because you'll be paying attention to the wrong spirits if you're not in the word of God. Through the word of God, we get to know who the voice of God is and when we begin to hear the voice of God, we can begin to walk by the voice of God in everyday living. Does that make sense, church? 
We're living in an era where trust is eroded, and as a result, people are asking the very question that they were asking Paul in the book of Romans. God, do you keep your promises? Can we trust you? Perhaps, again, you've asked this question, these questions people have been asking since the first human beings when Adam and Eve said, God, did you really say this? And they'll continue to ask it until he comes back. God indeed keeps his promises, but I want to unpack why you can believe that this morning, and I want you to confront the areas of your life that perhaps maybe you're distrusting God. So to receive the promises of God, you have to trust the giver of the promises. In fact, this is our main point this morning. Write this down. To trust his promise is to receive his promise. To trust his promise is to receive his promise. You cannot receive the promises of God if you don't have faith. Faith is a prerequisite. Three reasons why we can trust the promises of God, and this we're gonna unpack this morning. Number one is the word of God. Secondly, God's mercy is not unjust. And finally, God's lordship is final. Let's take a look at that first one. The reason why we can trust the promises of God is God's word does not fail. So again, Paul begins this new section in chapters 9 through 11 that deal with the nation of Israel. And this is important because in the previous section, uh, in section 8 specifically, chapter 8, uh, he deals with justification by faith alone. Anybody who places their faith and trust in Jesus is justified, declared not guilty. And so people are beginning to ask, okay, if the whole world can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happened to God's chosen people? If anyone's justified, that is saved by faith alone in Christ, what will happen to them? Well, before Christ, God chose a nation. God chose a people. In the Old Testament, we see this as Israel. Israel was chosen to be God's people to be an example to the rest of the world what it meant to worship the one true God. Because every other nation that surrounded Israel, they were pagan nations, meaning they worshiped false gods, false idols. It's no different really today if you, if you worship a, a, another, a god from another religion or you worship yourself or you worship an object or, or, or a person in your life, that's an idol. And yet Israel, instead of being an example to the world, fell to idolatry. And eventually God gave the nation over to captivity that would, and Israel would be wiped off the face of the map until 1948. But it's through Israel's failure, the rest of the world would have the privilege of knowing God and being ambassadors for Christ. We see this in Romans 11, chapter 11. It says, by their transgression, that is Israel's, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So the gospel was spreading throughout the world and most of the native people of Israel and those dispersed uh, around the world were left in the dust in the rejection of Christ. And in a competitive world, Paul could have been like, <laughs> I want you to look at Israel. <laughs> they rejected God. They were the people of God. And look at them, losers, right? Like Paul could have, Paul was a competitive person. Paul was known uh, to, to, in, his, in his days as, in Judaism as being a Hebrew of Hebrews. But when he was a follower of Christ, that competitive edge died because his heart was broken for his very people. Paul didn't gloat in people's failures. We see this in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They 
are Israelites. Paul has a great sorrow, a great sorrow for the failure of faith the Jewish people had in Christ. So much so that he wishes he could switch spots with them. If there's a way that I can switch spots in unbelief, I'll do it for the, for, for the people that I grew up with. And again, Paul knew the Jewish faith very well before placing his faith in Jesus. He was, he was a persecutor of the church. He would murder people who are Christians. And when people would see Paul walk down the street, they'd be, they would want his autograph. They knew him. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. But he said, I took all of that and I counted it as garbage in exchange for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Man, that needs to be our example, doesn't it, church? One who does not gloat in people that are, that are failing and one does not question if the word of God is failing, that we realize that there are going to be people that receive Jesus, that walk in Jesus, and there's going to be people that don't. And the people that don't, our heart needs to break. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem for their unbelief, Paul's heart hurt for those who would even seek to imprison him now and kill him. And this serves as an example for our hearts. Paul did not gloat over his enemy's failures. And this is so opposite of what we see in society today with cancel culture. For those whom you disagree with, our natural selves, we need to admit this actually. In our natural selves, we like to see people fail. In our natural selves, we like to see people hurt and harmed. Why? Because when we see somebody else fail, it artificially props up our egos. It artificially props ourselves up to feel like we're better than somebody else. You see it in the workplace. We see it in marriages. We see it all over the place. Even Christians can fall into this satanic trap. It's an artificial feeling that makes you feel better than someone else. This is why we gossip. You know why we gossip? I think gossip actually is Christian crack, all right? You want to know why? <laughs> because we don't look at it as bad as crack, right? We don't look at it as bad as a drug, but yet when we gossip, we get some of the same effects if you're on drugs. You get a dopamine hit. Oh, man, did you hear about this person? Oh, really, what? Right? Ooh, I feel good right now. Why? Because you're artificially platforming yourself over somebody else. When someone's brought low, you get that high. But Paul's saying, no, there's a different way. There's a different way. I know these people are now trying to kill me, but there's a different way. If we are brokenhearted for those that persecute you, if you are brokenhearted for those that are so far from Jesus Christ, you'll never puff your chest up and say, look at me. You'll hardly be like, God, I pray they would know their surpassing knowledge of what it means to know you. I pray they know that you died on the cross to save them from their sins. I pray they know why they're even on this planet. And yes, a large number of Jewish people were rejecting Christ. Paul was broken. And this led to many people ask, okay, if God's people are failing, did God's word fail? The answer is no. You see, the trust his promise is to receive his promise. God's word didn't fail. It's the people who failed, and Paul didn't gloat over it because God has so much to offer through his promises. God has so much to offer through his promises. Let's take a look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came to the Christ, who is God over all. Praise forever. Amen. 
Paul was not only gutted because they were his fellow people, but because they were rejecting so much. When anyone rejects Christ, they are rejecting, namely, I want you to understand this, your adoption. Your adoption to be in the family of God. My kids recently, uh, it's been more than recent, it's been a while, they've been begging me for a pet, all right? We are a petless home, and they have about had it, all right? So I said, okay, let's get a dog. And I was unanimously voted down uh, by the counsel of my family, namely my wife, all right? She had veto power. But they want a cat. I was like, okay, let's, all right. And so finally we decided we're going to get a cat. So in the next few days, we're picking up a cat, all right? So Bristol's his name, all right. Uh, but anyway, but the way that we found our cat was we went to the Humane uh, Society here in Kenosha, great organization, and we walked in and said, okay, we'd like a cat. They said, okay. I didn't know this whole process, right? The only time I went there is when we had to put our last cat down, and that was sad. So now I'm here. I'm like, what do we do? Like, this is kind of bringing back some memories here. No, we're going to send you into this room, and you're going to look at a bunch of cats, Okay. And you're going to pick one. I'm like, what in the world? Okay, so I go in there, and I'm like, looking at all these cats. I'm like, that, I guess that one looks good. I guess that one looks good. I guess that one looks good. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to pray about it. I mean, why not, right? This thing's going to be sharing our house. I'm like, Lord, just show me the cat. And the cat right in front of me goes, meow. I was like, oh, hey, how you doing, right? And the kid's like, we want that one. I'm like, really? You want that one? Okay. Hey, we want that one. Oh, we love that one, right? Then we got the call, and we're picking them up. Why? Because we chose that cat. We're adopting them. But let me tell you this. Adoption with the Lord is much more important than adopting a cat. You see, I know in society today, sometimes we adopt a pet and we put them in our family photos. Not judging you on that, right? You call them your kids. You can do that if you want. But they're not your kids, right? Uh, They're not a human being, right? They're important, Uh, You can love them, right? Okay, I know my kids are gonna tell me that, right? But here's the deal. You are made in the image of God. You are made to reflect God's goodness. You are much more important than an animal. And yet, God, through all the population of humanity, chose you. He looked at you and said, you, you, you. He chose you for adoption. When you place your faith and trust in Christ, he's choosing you. Now, don't make any mistake here. You see, here's the deal. Faith is a personal decision. It's only through faith you receive this personal adoption that unleashes his promises in your life. But when you place your faith and trust in Christ alone, that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he stood in your place. He took on your sins. He who knew no sin took on your sin. Sin that separated you from Almighty God. Jesus being a perfect sinless sacrifice was able to satisfy the wrath of God. Uh, and and, and you were, you're saved when you place your faith and trust in him alone. Listen, I've heard people say, well, you know, that's really great that Jesus died on the cross. I would have done it too. Really? Well, you could have. Could have went to the cross. You could have died. And then you'd have been buried and you'd be dead, Right? Because the thing is, it's not about the act of just going to the cross that was, uh, that was the main idea. Uh, yes, the cross was, was excruciating. Yes, the, the cross was awful. But it's what happened on the cross. You see, you had a perfect, sinless sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who took on the wrath of God. That was the big deal on the cross. That he stood in our place and he was able to stand in our place because he resurrected from the dead. 
And when you place your faith and trust in him alone, his righteousness is placed on you. You're justified. You're declared not guilty. And you are adopted in the family of God. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, we've all heard the phrase, oh, we're all God's children. Usually, you know, someone will say something kind of nice and then they'll end the whole nice statement with, we're all God's children. We've heard that, right? Right? It's theologically wrong. We're all made in the image of God. Every single person born on this planet was fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb. Everybody in this planet is made to reflect God's goodness, but only those who place their faith and trust in Jesus are God's children, because adoption comes with justification by faith alone. And with adoption comes the promises of God, to trust his promises, to receive his promise, and God's word doesn't fail, but adoption doesn't come because you have always gone to church or you did some kind of work. No, rather, the promise comes from God, not by works. Verse six. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abram's children are descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children of the physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. You see, the word of God has not failed because the people of Israel didn't receive Jesus. The people failed because they didn't receive the promises. And Paul clearly states that not all who have descended from Israel are Israel. That's so important. That's like us today saying, not everybody who goes to church is a follower of Christ. It's much like today when you hear people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian because I grew up going to church, or you know, I go to church on Easter, I go to church on Christmas, or my grandma, oh, she read the Bible, or, or you know, my family goes down four generations. When I first came to Kenosha 15 years ago, I was a, uh, I was a, uh, worship, I was a youth pastor, not worship pastor, I was a youth pastor. Oh, you don't want me to be a worship pastor, oh boy. Um, I was a youth pastor, and I was talking to this one individual, and they were a fourth-generation church attender, believer. They sat with their grandma, and yet they didn't really know where their faith stood. They didn't really have motivation to read God's word. They didn't have motivation to be any different in their language or any different uh, in how they lived in their everyday life. Uh, they just kind of tethered their life with, this is where grandma sits, this is the church I attend, and this is what I do for about an hour of my Sundays. Here's the deal. You cannot by osmosis, you cannot by just by default, have a relationship with Jesus. It's personal. And I know that sometimes we look back at even being involved with Christian community. Sometimes we feel like, well, I've been involved with so much Christian busyness and I have Caleb on the radio all the time. I'm good with God. Listen, those might not be bad things. Those aren't bad things, reading God's word, being in church, listening to worship music. Those are great things, but they don't make you right with God. You, you can say, well, I went through catechism. I went through Awana. I went through Royal Rangers. I, 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 I did all these different things. And God's like, hey, your works don't impress me. The Bible says our works are filthy rags. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love obedience. He loves obedience. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to do good things in society. He wants us to do good things in society. But never for a second are we impressing him to somehow we're justifying ourselves. Does that make sense? And it's a good thing. 
because there's no way we can do good, something good enough to be good enough before an almighty, perfect God. You can look the part but not receive the promises of God by faith. God gives his promises through undeserved merit called grace. Verse nine, for this is a statement of the promise. At this time I will come, and he's referring back now to uh, some stories from uh, the book of Genesis. This time I'll come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though his sons had not, yet, uh, had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. Not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the one the promise was supposed to go through. Uh, it, it, by the way, God prophesied uh, that Abram and uh, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, were going to have a kid. And they were like, you're crazy. We're like 100 years old, right? They laughed at God. And they got impatient with the promises of God. And so what they ended up doing, they ended up taking it in their own hands. And, and, and Sarah gave uh, her concubine uh, uh, to uh, Abraham to sleep with. And he slept with her. They had a kid named Ishmael. That didn't go well. They got jealous, right? And but somehow they thought like, okay, God, your promise has taken too much time. So we're going, to do, we're, we're going to take it into our own hands. We're going, to, we're going to help you out. You can't help out the promises of God. You just need to respond to the promises of God and be obedient to the promises of God. Amen? But Abraham took things in his own hands, literally, all right? And he uh, had Ishmael. Ishmael was not the, uh, per, the child of promise. It was Isaac. Why? Because God chose to use Isaac, not Ishmael. That was his plan. Well, eventually he had Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons. One was Jacob. The other one was Esau. Esau was the firstborn which means he was entitled to all the promises of being a firstborn. But one day Esau was working hard, and after a hard day's work, and you come into the home, what do you typically feel? You feel some, oh, you're famished, you're tired, but you're hungry. Genesis chapter 25, 29, let me read this to you. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Well, we can relate to that, right? He was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birth, uh, what use is my birthright to me? Basically, his brother was saying, hey, you want this stew? It's gonna cost you your birthright. He's like, well, I'm hungry. What use is my birthright? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. We laugh at this, but how many of you lose your mind when you get hangry, right? Think about it. When you get hangry after a hard day's work, someone wants to have a long conversation with you, someone wants to, you know, hey, hey, can, can, can you come here and take a look at these reports at work? Leave me alone! I need to get what? I need to get food! I need to get coffee! I need to get something! I'm hangry! And when you get hangry, what happens? You can begin to say things you don't mean to other people. Or maybe you do mean them and you don't have the filter, right? You, you begin to make decisions you shouldn't make. You make bad decisions. Most of my arguments in marriage have two common denominators. Number one, I'm wrong. Number two, I'm hangry. Being angry isn't a bad, bad position in life. And Esau was hungry. He was hangry, and he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You thought Panera was expensive? Oh, yeah. He sold everything for this. 
And as with both sets of brothers, we notice, we see that one person chose the promise and the other rejected the promise. But there's something else going on here behind human effort and human choice. It's called God's sovereignty. When someone rejects the promise of God, it's as if God, it seems like God's out of control. Like, like if, you're, if you're witnessing to a family member and you're like, God, why can't you do something about this? God, don't you care about my mom? Don't you care about my dad? Don't you care about my best friend? I've been praying to you for 20 years for this. Why aren't you moving? And it can seem like when someone in their free will is rejecting God that somehow they're stronger than God and God is out of control. But I want to tell you, church, God is not out of control. God is completely sovereign. God is sovereign and he's in control. And, and this puts us in a debate, a familiar debate for some of you if you've been in the church world for a long time, uh, of, of God's sovereignty and our free will. In theological terms, this is often a debate between what we call Calvinism and Arminianism, or predestination versus free will. If some of you are like, I don't know any of those, consider yourself lucky, all right? So Calvinism is, is the heavy view of, of, of that God elects every outcome, while Arminianism is heavy on the view that humans have complete and total free will. And again, I know that is a simplistic way to really uh, explain both of them, but, but here's the deal. It's oversimplification of the debate, I know that. But this debate has raged from the beginning of time and will rage until Jesus Christ comes back. And I know some people are so stuck on this debate, they're gonna try it in heaven, and God's like, nip it. <laughs> there is a time and place for the debate of God's sovereignty and, 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 and human free will. There really is. I think it's a healthy debate. But my re there's just some people that are so stuck on this. They're stuck on like, all right, I believe in God's sovereignty so much, and they're not being obedient in everything God has said. Or there's some people that believe that they are so important that if I don't do this, then God's ways are they're just not gonna happen. And, and, and people debate this thing so much, and people that are in seminary, they, they, would, they would spend every lunch on this, and they debate long into the hours of the night, into the wee hours of the morning, and you know what they'd find me in the debate? <laughs> huh, what, what's going on, why? Because here's the deal, I'm not saying the debate is bad, all right? What I'm saying is, it is often a distraction, why? Because God, let me, just, let me just simplify this a little bit, okay? For all my Calvinist friends, and all my Arminian friends, where do I land? I land with, called, well, I affirm God's sovereignty, and I affirm human responsibility. Can we, can, we, can we admit that, church? Right? Some of you are gonna land in different areas. That's allowed in this church as long as God's sovereignty is affirmed. Uh, there, there's, there's bad theologies out there that say, you know, God just doesn't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Yes, he does, all right? God does know what's gonna happen tomorrow. God's completely in charge of today and tomorrow. Uh, he's completely sovereign and in control. So God is sovereign, but we have human responsibility and they work together. It's not contradictory. It, it just shows that our finite minds have a hard time seeing how our infinite God works. And he works together everything for his glory. The way that he has chosen to make history go forward is through his people to choose the promises of God. And make no mistake, when people reject the promises of God, nothing can stop his plan. If we reject it, it's not God who's gonna miss out, we're gonna miss out. Did you get that? Sometimes they're like, God, you need me. He doesn't need us. 
He's asking us to join in his unstoppable plan. And when we reject God, he's not like, oh no, I need you. He's like, well, stinks to be you, right? It is a joy, it is an honor, it is a blessing to be a part of what God is doing. God is completely sovereign and we have the complete responsibility to be obedient in everything he says. We see here that God will show mercy in whom he shows mercy. And when we receive mercy, when we ask for it in faith, to trust his promises is to receive his promise. God's word doesn't fail. Secondly, God's mercy is not unjust. God's mercy is not unjust. And see, this is what people are thinking. is like, okay, if God's completely sovereign, but yet bad things are happening, and then God calls him to the rug, uh, he must be unjust. Eh, wrong, Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God because Israel rejected him? Absolutely not. Throughout church history, it's been leveled against God that because he does not give mercy and forgiveness to everyone, that God is not just at all. How could a good God let my good grandma not go to heaven? How could a good God allow one person to be healed and then another person to die? How could a good God allow people to do evil things, say evil things, while good people aren't prospering? Man, these are questions that maybe you're asking right now in your prayer life. God, give me understanding. And these are questions that will continue. These are questions that are being leveled by the Apostle Paul. How could a good God, who is supposedly sovereign, and he is sovereign, how could a good God allow these things? Does he know what history is going to, how it's going to unfold? He sure does. Well, then how could he be just? He is just. Let me explain it in this way. I, the, one of the best ways I heard it explained was by John Piper in an NPR interview of all things. And they interviewed him on a couple of occasions, uh, one after a giant tsunami in 2004, and then again, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and so they asked him, how could a good God allow such devastation? If, a, if God is so in control and so sovereign, uh, how, could, how could this devastation be allowed? And so John Piper actually first turned to Jesus. That's always a good thing to do. When people are asking you questions, sometimes we're like, we want to give like a really, you know, cute and, and really deep answer with a lot of, you know, like, you know, just kind of, you know, some breathing noises in between words because it makes us sound really, really smart. But in reality, we should just go back to the Bible. What did Jesus say about it? And so that's what he did. I, and, and this is what really stuck with me. He speaks of a time when a tower fell on people. Luke chapter 13, verse 4 Jesus speaking, or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is talking about an incident. We don't know anything more except for his reference here, but the hearers would have understood this. A major tragedy took place. A tower fell over and killed families. And people are like, hey, um, God, why would you allow that? So Jesus spoke of, it, spoke of this disaster and he positioned it in, in, a, in a spot that I believe repositions our understanding of how God is a just God even in an evil world. And it's this. He says, do you think the people in Jerusalem that are still living are any more godly than the people that died? No. Unless you repent, you two will all perish. Piper's point of bringing Jesus' Jesus's words of Luke 13 up is that God's mercy is that we're still living. God's mercy is because it's new every day when we wake up. His, his point with the, uh, with the tsunami and Katrina is this, is it's devastating. 
it shows that we live in a fallen world that needs redeemed. That's the beauty of Revelation, is that we see at the end of the Bible, this world indeed will be redeemed and all things will be made new. But until then, we live in a fallen world where tragedies happen. And the tragedy should not point us that, God, you're unjust, but that it should make us long in our hearts that, God, we need you. We need your justice. We, 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 we need you to come and change the situation. And Piper's point is this. If God was just, Hurricane Katrina would have wiped out the whole world. The tsunamis would have covered every square inch of land. You see, when we feel like we deserve, let's say, heaven by merit, we miss the point completely and open ourselves up to the error that God is unjust for not giving mercy and salvation towards everyone. No, rather, we have a good God that is merciful and he's offering us this morning his mercy, his promises, if we receive it. Paul goes on to quote Exodus 33, 19 in Romans chapter nine, verse 15. He says this, for he tells Moses, I will show mercy unto whom I show mercy and I will have compassion who I have compassion as a result, verse 16, so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I may display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and harden whom he wants to harden. God's mercy is not unjust. Yes, it's true that some people are healed and some people are not. Yes, it's true that some people will know Christ when they hear the gospel and some will reject Christ when they don't hear the gospel. But that doesn't mean his mercy is unjust or unfair. In fact, I wanna position it this way. Praise God, he's unfair. Praise God, he's unfair, because if we were living by his fairness, we would all be doomed. Fairness ended in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, but yet, but yet God gave them a second chance. Fairness would lead us to be dead in our sins and that we would experience eternity away from Christ. But because God isn't fair, he offers his mercy. He offers his grace, which is undeserved merit. And he's reached out his hand towards you this morning. No matter your past, no matter your failures, no matter where you're at right now. And he's giving you that second chance. He's giving you the way through Jesus Christ when there was no way. So praise God for his undeserved favor. Praise God he is not fair because, because he's not fair, he's offering you mercy this morning. He is sovereign and is choosing. We are responsible to choose and receive his grace and to receive it. And all this goes to show that we are not the boss and we are not the way. God is the boss. God is the way. And it leads us to our third point this morning. God's lordship is final. Romans 9, 19. You'll say to me, therefore, when, when, uh, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? Everyone likes to be in charge. Everyone. We love to be in charge. Sometimes we will try to be in charge to great expense. But I want us to repeat this this morning. Say to the person actually next to you right now, say, hey, you know what? You're not in charge. God's in charge. Go ahead. To the person on your left and right, just tell them, hey, you're not in charge. God's in charge. You know what? And some of you are like, ooh, I don't like how that feels. Like, I like to be in charge. We all like to be in charge. But guess what? I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. The Lord God Almighty's in charge. This is his church. Our focus is him on the cross of Jesus Christ. But we have a problem with that today, don't we? 
Today, we like to be the boss of ourselves. We want to do it our way. Like the Frank Sinatra song, right? I did it my way, right? That's the theme of hell, all right? But yet, sometimes we want that to be the anthem in our own church. Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. And you cannot grow if you don't acknowledge his lordship in your life, in every area of your life. Whether it be your sexuality, your thought life, your words, what you say about others, everything. Jesus is Lord. And Paul is being asked this question. If Jesus is in charge and people are rejecting him and he's sovereign over everything, why does he still find faults? And he's like, oh my gosh, are you still asking this question? He's like, all right. And I love how he responds. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Oh, man, how many of us said this in middle school in the mirror? Why did you make me like this, right? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump, one piece of pottery for honor and the other for dishonor? We can't say to God, why did you make me like this? God has made us in his image. You are not a mistake. And as we as finite human beings cannot question God's ways, some will live and receive salvation, some will not. God is not responsible for sin, but he offers salvation for those who have sinned. That's you and me. I love what J.D. Greer, he uh, quoted three people in response to the whole God's sovereignty, human responsibility, I think, are really worth repeating. John Stott said it this way. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's alone. But if anyone is lost, the blame is all theirs. C.S. Lewis put it this way, hell is always locked from the inside. And Dr. James Kennedy put it this way. It's a little bit longer of a quote. He said, say you have five people planning to hold up a bank. They are friends of mine. Well, I find out about it and I plead with them not to do it. I beg them and finally they push me out of the way and they head out to rob the bank. Yet I tackle the weakest looking one and wrestle him to the ground. Yet the others go ahead, they rob the bank in the process, kill a guard and two civilians. They are captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the one man who is not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask this question, whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame you? And this other man who was walking around free, can he say, because my heart was so good and resisted this temptation, I'm free. No, the reason that he is free is because of me. I restrained him. So it is with those who go to hell and have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus himself. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from the beginning to its end. Jesus is Lord. He's in control and salvation is from him alone. And yet, you have the personal responsibility to receive Jesus Christ and to be obedient and do everything that he says. It seems like a contradiction. I assure you it's not. It shows you just how amazing our God is, that yet he can be in control in all things. And yet he has chosen you and I to be the vessels of his will. He's chosen you and I to be people to be responsible to respond to what he has said. We won't fully understand those two things until we get to heaven. And if anybody says they do, just know they're overstating it. But what we can rest in this, where you're doubting the promises of God, 
God is completely sovereign. He knows everything you're going through. He knows every struggle you're going through right now. And know this, because God is sovereign, it's never an excuse for you to just sit back and say, well, God will do it. Yeah, he will do it. We can trust him that he can do anything, but he wants to use you. He wants you on your knees, pleading with him, talking with him. He wants you being obedient to areas of your life that you're refusing to be obedient to. He wants you to be the hands and feet of the gospel through this world so that people will know. The Bible says that how will they know if there's not a preacher? And it's not talking about the preacher on the stage. It's talking about someone who's ready to proclaim. God wants to use you. He's fully in control, but we are fully responsible to be obedient in all what God has called us to do. And church, I wanna just say this. It's hard to do things what God is asking us to do. But that is why he's given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to fill us and to make us capable of obeying Jesus and everything he's asking us to do. So I wanna do a couple things. Number one is I wanna give the opportunity for those that don't know Christ today. You've never personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're that person that you just went to church all your life and you've never made it personal. You've just been assuming. Today the assumption ends and the knowledge that indeed you know Jesus begins. And then we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit just to fill us, okay? So Father, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And Father, I just pray for anybody in this room Anybody in this room that doesn't know you as Savior, they've been assuming it. Maybe they assumed it through their grandma. Maybe they've been involved in just church community, but they never stopped that moment and said, Jesus, I need to make this personal. This isn't through somebody else. I need to personally place my faith and trust in you alone. So today, Jesus, I wanna, I wanna ask for your forgiveness. With every head's bowed and eyes closed, if, if that's you, you know you've never made it personal. You know today you wanna place your faith and trust in Jesus. Today you want him to come into your life and, and, and forgive you of all your sins. Just acknowledge him right now. Place your full faith and trust that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he rose from the dead. Place your faith and trust in him right now. If that's you, today you wanna make certain that you wanna place your faith and trust in Jesus. With every head's bowed and eyes closed, just raise up your hand right now and say, that's me. I wanna thank you. I wanna place my faith and trust in him alone. I wanna place my faith and trust in him alone. Today, I want the confidence of knowing that I've made it personal. So Father, I pray for those that are saying yes to you today, that today they would place their faith and trust in you alone, not anything else, not any of their works, but what you did on the cross for them. And Lord, I pray for this entire church now, just as we end in worship. Lord, I pray that our prayer is this, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Lord Jesus, we can't do any of this without the Spirit of God filling us and empowering us leading us. So Father, today, there may be people that are seeking to be filled by your Holy Spirit for perhaps maybe the first time. They've never actively prayed that. For others, this is going to be a time of refreshing. So Lord Jesus, I just pray that indeed you would meet with us now. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.